Good evening and welcome to the Noahide Nations class on Proverbs. It is Sunday, January 9th, 2011. My name is Doug Taylor. And tonight we're starting with Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 33. Proverbs 16, 33. And the verse reads, The lot is cast in the lap. Its entire judgment is from Hashem. The lot is cast in the lap. Its entire judgment is from Hashem. And you all probably know what I'm going to say next, which is, what are the questions around that? Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast in the lap. Its entire judgment is from Hashem. Any questions on that verse? Ah, Jim, thank you. What lot? And Linda, what's the lot and what does it have to do with the lap? Yes, good questions. Seems like a funny thing. And Jim, yes, how does that relate to Hashem's judgment? So let's start with some definitions. A lot is like a lottery, uh, something that is supposed to be a random selection. Uh, Sometimes we use rolling the dice or sometimes we do, uh, you know, who has the short stick if we have a bunch of toothpicks that are long and we clip one off and then everybody takes one and who ends up with the short one. According to the Ralbag and the Matsudas, the lap is where the lots would lie before they were drawn. And I presume that is probably in a, a small little bag. <clears throat> then you'd reach into the bag and maybe one lot would be something like would have a plus sign on it or one a minus sign or something so that there would be a a differentiation. So as I understand this, the first part is saying that the lot, that is the outcome, is determined while the lot is still in the lap, that is before it is actually drawn. Okay, and the second half is saying that the determination is from Hashem. So the verse seems to be saying that when you're facing a lottery or the drawing of lots, the outcome is from Hashem. So how does that work? I mean, you would think it's supposed to be random. Now we've discussed before that mankind operates within systems and that God relates to man through two systems. The first one is the laws of nature, and the second is God's personal providence. God's personal providence affects certain people in certain situations if they have reached a certain level. The study of who, when, and under what conditions God personally intervenes in a person's life, that's a whole study in itself. So, but as an example, I think we've given in the past, is that if a righteous person were walking down a forest along a path and a lion was coming down the path at the other end toward the righteous person, God might cause a deer to suddenly jump up across the lion's path and distract the lion so that the righteous person could cross through the forest safely, assuming that the righteous person was on a level to get that kind of intervention. Now, given that those are the two systems under which we operate, I will suggest that when the lot is drawn 
or let's say it's the dice are rolled or whatever it is, those dice operate under one of those two systems. They operate either under the laws of nature or they operate under God's personal providence. There don't seem to be any other choices. Now, here's an interesting question. In the physical world, is there such a thing as randomness? Or more specifically, when we look at the roll of dice, is it actually random? What do you think? Is there really such a thing in the physical world as randomness? Okay, Terry, you said yes from our perspective. Okay, good distinction. And Jim, you're saying yes. Okay, so I'm going to suggest a different answer that in a true sense of physics and reality that there is no randomness. And here's, here's why. I'm going to suggest that the role of the dice is actually a very complicated physics problem. If we knew all of the physical forces involved, for example, the exact force applied when throwing the dice, their exact height above the table, the ex their exact angle in the person's hand, the amount of friction between the dice material and the tabletop material, and so on and so forth, then we could accurately predict the dice. If we could measure all of those individual factors, there's nothing magic going on. We know what's happening. There are force vectors and there are air molecules in the way um, and so forth. If we knew all of that, we could accurately predict the dice. Same with the, the spin of a roulette wheel. Uh, you know, it, it's on a certain spindle, there's a certain amount of friction, a certain amount of, of air resistance, <coughs> excuse me, um, a certain uh, force applied uh, by the person who, who uh, spins it. If we knew all of the exact force vectors, um, we could make a prediction. So I'll say in that sense, it's not random. But Terry, yes, to your point, we don't know all the variables and we can't do all the calculations quickly enough, so we view it as random because we don't have the capability to measure and consolidate all that information in order to make an accurate determination. <clears throat> but Hashem does know all of those things. So if the dice is being thrown in a situation where only the laws of nature are operating, then the outcome, its, its entire judgment, is known by Hashem and is determined by Hashem because he set up all the laws of physics. Okay, it's his system. It's his laws of nature. Thus, the dice outcome is determined by him. So, in the first case, where we have the laws of nature operating, the judgment comes from Hashem because he set up all the laws of physics. Okay? So... Let's take the second case. Suppose the dice are thrown or the lot is drawn in a situation where God's personal providence is involved. Well, in that case, the same conclusion applies because since God is intervening on behalf of someone, the outcome is known and determined by Hashem before the dice are ever thrown. So what do we learn from all this? 
I'll suggest to you that this verse teaches us that God's justice and God's accuracy are complete. Even in the case of drawing lots, which looks to us like a random process, each individual involved will get exactly what they are supposed to receive. Okay, any questions on that? Jim, you asked a question about practicality. So what do we actually do with this? I'll suggest that it gives us a framework to think about situations in life that to us may look unfair. So for example, um, uh, one person wins the lottery and one doesn't, or one person gets um, a break in life and you know, has a rich uncle who leaves him, you know, a hundred million dollars and another person doesn't. And a person could say, well, gee, you know, that, that's not, that's not fair. That's not right. That should have been me, or I should have had a, something different than what I got. And what this seems to be suggesting is that Hashem's uh, judgment in such matters uh, and his accuracy is complete. Uh, because we're operating under the laws of nature, then that's what happens to us on an everyday basis. And sometimes we make the stoplight and sometimes we don't. Uh, but that whole system operates in accordance with laws of physics and so forth that were set up by Hashem. Um, so the entire world operates that way. And whether, uh, whether I'm under God's personal providence or not, I can trust that uh, there is divine wisdom behind the system that is causing things to be the way they are. Uh, so that can give me, I guess, some practical comfort uh, in a situation where I may look at something and say, gee, that doesn't look fair to me. But in the broad spectrum uh, of, of the world, it may be that you know there are many factors that I don't see. Uh, so I think it's about recognizing uh, a, a framework in which to think about issues that occur where we may feel like, gee, you know, why did so-and-so get the short stick uh, or the roll of the dice and not myself? Jim, does that help? And Mona, you've asked in the case of Leah, can you expand a little on that? as to uh, the question? Ah, okay, you said her lot was cast for Esau. In other words, she was apparently supposed to be uh, the wife of, of Esau. Uh, yeah, I don't know all the, the, uh, the details on the lot was for Esau, although my understanding was that she was um, picked for that and that that was at least one explanation given for why she was teary because she did not want to be married to him and instead she got, uh, she got Jacob. Could have been that prayers were an influence on that. Uh, that I can't say for sure, but you bring up a very important point. <clears throat> the fact that the world operates the way it does does not mean that we should not try to influence events in a way that we think is uh, appropriate. So for example, in the case of, of Leah, uh, you know, if it was picked that, okay, she was going to be a, a wife for Esau, there's certainly nothing saying that she had to sit by idly and just accept that. But if there were actions that she could take 
in the practical world to try to change that, uh, then that would certainly, I think, be the thing to do. So this is not a fatalistic type of viewpoint, but uh, one that simply says when it's all said and done, okay, the judgment is from Hashem. We certainly have the opportunity to influence things uh, and make changes happen uh, in, in life that can have an impact on our ultimate consequences. So very good point. Thanks for bringing that up. Any others? Okay, then let's move on to uh, Proverbs chapter 17, new chapter for us, and verse 1. And the verse reads, Better a dry piece of bread and peace with it than a house full of feasting with strife. Better a dry piece of bread and peace with it than a house full of feasting with strife. So what do you think about that one? What kind of questions come up around that verse? Ah, <laughs> oh, Jim, I like it. Why not a tub of butter rather than peace? Yeah, let's get some butter on that. So, Good, good point. Um, Mona, you've mentioned living on the roof. Uh, you'll have to expand on that one for me. But it is a good, uh, Jim, a good question. Why, why that particular arrangement? Uh, why, why does it say a dry piece of bread in peace with it? Um, so I have a couple of questions. <clears throat> First of all, why does it say a dry piece of bread? Why not just a piece of bread? And why is the verse, in fact, true at all? I mean, what, what does it mean and what is it telling us? Louis, thank you. Yes, dry piece of bread. Uh, oh, Mona, you said instead of the strife, one goes elsewhere, like up to the roof. Okay, yep. That would be, a, that would be an approach to get out of it. So the art scroll points out that the word here for bread is an unusual one, and that it refers specifically to a broken morsel of bread. And our scroll also indicates that the adjective dry means that it has no flavor. So we're not just talking about a piece of bread here. We're talking about a broken morsel of bread that has no flavor, which is just about as unappetizing probably as real food can get, uh, unless it's something with a flavor we just can't stand. You've got a little bit of something it's dry, no flavor, not exactly something that most people would probably write home about. Yet the verse says that having that, this dry piece of bread with peace in the house is actually better than a house that is full of feasting or celebration if there is strife or contention in the house. So how come that is? Well, the attainment of peace is an important value in Torah. Many things are done in order to achieve uh, peace. We see in the story of Abraham and Sarah that God even changed what was said in a story for the sake of peace in the home. And let me grab my living Torah. And if you have one handy, you can follow along and open up to uh, Genesis chapter 18, 
and you may be familiar with uh, this particular story. Genesis 18, verses 11 through 14. And this is the case where um, the strangers have come to visit Abraham, and uh, he's uh, rushing around to prepare provisions for them. <clears throat> and it says, Sarah was listening behind the entrance of the tent, and he was on the other side. Abraham and Sarah were already old, well on in years, and Sarah no longer had female periods. She laughed to herself, saying, Now that I'm worn out, shall I have my heart's desire? My husband is old. God said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Can I really have a child when I am so old? And then goes on to say, Is anything too difficult for God? At the designated time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Now, does anything strike anyone as unusual about that particular story? Very good, Linda. Thank you. Hashem chose to leave out the part where she says, my husband is old. And in fact, changes it to say, why did Sarah laugh and say, can I really have a child when I am so old? And it is my understanding that the sages teach that this teaches us about the incredible importance of peace in the home and that a lot of things are to be done for the sake of peace in the home. Uh, the Malbum summarizes it really beautifully. He says, inner serenity, undisturbed tranquility are the essence of true success in life and this can be attained even with a piece of dry bread so having that peace is more important than flavor or variety in the food okay if you have lots of food fine you have lots of food and then you have lots of different flavors but if there is strife with it it causes stress, it causes pain, it causes discomfort and illness, and ultimately a shortened life. I mean, we've probably all been around situations, uh, you know, either with friends or relatives or business people or whatever, where there is strife going on. And it's not fun. Uh, it's very stressful. Now, with a bland piece of food, yeah, there isn't a lot of flavor or variety, but there's no conflict and no stress and no pain and no discomfort and a peaceful serenity that can't be compared with any physical pleasure. So the peace trumps the food hands down. Physical pleasures are short-lived, but peaceful serenity is a psychological experience that profoundly affects a person, uh, both mentally and physically. It's the acceptance of what is. It's the absence of the battle against reality and the battles we have against other people. It's a state in which a person is in complete harmony with the reality that Hashem created. So the verse is teaching us about the importance of peace and how it is worth giving up all kinds of physical and material pleasures, if necessary, in order to have and maintain that peace. Okay. Any questions? Jimmy, you've asked the question, does this relate to choosing a spouse? Uh, we tend to associate food preparation historically with a wife, and yet there are better things to look for in a wife. I would absolutely say yes. 
Um, and the thing that, based on my Torah learning, that I would uh, say is, is paramount is or are the character values of the person that you are looking at to potentially marry. Um, along with, do I like this person, you know? Am I friends with them? I mean, if you marry somebody, you're going to spend a lot of time with them, and you better like them and enjoy being around them. And do you have the same goals, you know, and values that you want to pursue in life? Uh, whether the person can cook or not, you know, that's something that can be learned. Uh, but character values are very difficult uh, to, to change, and they can, but it takes a lot of work. So... Uh, and those are going to have a huge impact on the household, uh, the quality, the atmosphere in the home, the raising of children, and so forth. Uh, and Linda, yeah, you said we should also be content with what we have and not look elsewhere. That's a very good point. Uh, Ethics of the Fathers um, has a statement that who is rich, he who is happy with his lot. There is always someone generally with more than we have, and there's probably always someone with less. Uh, and so if we learn to be content with what we have, then we are truly uh, rich. And uh, yes, Lori and Terry, Hashem has given to, to us what we need. So agree with all those. Any other questions or comments? In that case, let's move on to Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 2. And the verse reads, An intelligent servant will rule over a son who causes shame and will share in the inheritance among the brothers. An intelligent servant will rule over a son who causes shame and will share in the inheritance among the brothers. So, what kind of questions might we ask around that verse? Okay, Linda Good, what servant? Uh, and Jim, why an intelligent slave rather than one with integrity? Okay, good. There's a very particular quality that's being called out here, uh, and obviously for some reason. Uh, or maybe is it, is it a good work ethic? Good. Uh, so we want to know what an intelligent servant is. Um, I would want to know what's a son who causes shame. Uh, what's, what's the characteristic there? And why does this work in the first half? Why does an intelligent servant or will an intelligent servant rule over a son who causes shame? There's got to be some kind of mechanism there. And why will that intelligent servant share in the inheritance among the brothers? Uh, and Linda, yes, why is he ruling over a son who causes shame? So let's start with some definitions. Uh, an intelligent servant, I will suggest, is one who uses wisdom and knowledge. He learns about what he needs to do. He analyzes situations. He looks at consequences. He makes decisions accordingly. He serves his master. He's dependable. He's trustworthy. Um, he's, he's a smart servant, not smart in a sneaky way, but, but, uh, intelligent in, uh, in a, in a positive sense of knowledge way. Now, a servant who operates like that 
will be considered trustworthy and will likely be given more and more responsibility. Uh, we saw that uh, with the story of Joseph uh, when he is uh, sold over to Potiphar and uh, you know rises in esteem and pretty soon is running uh, Potiphar's household. Uh, and then he gets thrown in prison and he rises in esteem there. He's considered trustworthy. He acts intelligently and wisely and is given more and more responsibility. So that's an intelligent servant. Now, what about a son who causes shame? What does he do? Well, since he's causing shame, we can assume that he's making poor decisions, decisions that don't take into account consequences or that lack knowledge of the area where the decision is being made. So he's not only making poor decisions, they are decisions that cause shame. That is, they cause shame to him because others can clearly see that he is not acting wisely, but more like a fool. And they, those decisions potentially cause shame to others. For example, maybe to his parents or the rest of his family. So why will the intelligent servant rule over such a son? And I'll suggest it's because whoever is in charge of the overall situation, for example, the parents, let's say you've got a set of, of uh, parents who are getting up there in age, they have a son who's, you know, past the teen years, is a, uh, in his, say, 20s, um, and, uh, and then they have a servant that's been around for a very long time and, and that they've uh, relied on heavily. Well, they will see that the, the intelligent servant is wise and trustworthy, and they will entrust that servant with more responsibility, and eventually they will give him responsibility over the shameful son because they will recognize the shameful son can't be trusted to make a wise decision. And if the shameful son is the one who is in charge of the overall situation, so for example, the parents died, and left everything to a son who acts shamefully, I'll submit to you that the intelligent servant will still eventually rule over the shameful son because he will end up making decisions that essentially constitute rule over the son. And he'll do that because he'll be the one who understands the family's business affairs and financial affairs. And so he'll have the power to make decisions in those affairs because the shameful son won't be smart enough to do that. And so he will essentially rule over the shameful son. The shameful son will have to rely on him because uh, otherwise the shameful son's estate will be completely destroyed. And since he is not an intelligent son, he's going to have to reach out to others to help him manage his affairs, and he'll rely on the intelligent servant. And so the intelligent servant will end up uh, in a sort of de facto way, ruling over that shameful son. Now, how does he share in the inheritance of the brothers? Well, because the intelligent servant is ruling over the shameful son, he is handling the financial affairs of the family. And so he will end up benefiting from the inheritance of the family, not because he's going to swindle the family or fraudulently steal their money, but because his wise handling of the affairs will also result in his needs being met. 
In other words, since he's handling the affairs of the family well, he will also benefit as a result since he is, so to speak, their financial affairs manager. So in that sense, then he shares in the inheritance among the brothers because his intelligence is superior to theirs. Now, the Malbum has a different interpretation of this verse that ultimately applies it metaphorically to the area of Torah learning. But actually, before I go on, let me pause and make sure we don't have any questions on uh, that first interpretation. So the Malbum's interpretation is, he says this, and I'm reading from uh, Malbum on Mishlei, published by Feldheim. He says like this, Wealth and power are not hereditary. They go to the ambitious and hardworking. Eventually, therefore, an intelligent and industrious slave or servant will rise above a spoiled, lazy son. Symbolically, this means that a serious, intelligent proselyte will succeed more than a Jew born into the fold if the native son is lazy and irresponsible. Not birth, but personal effort ultimately counts. End of quote. So that certainly speaks to us non-Jews. I mean, not that we would wish in any way for anyone to be lazy and irresponsible, but it helps us realize that by putting forth personal effort, we can achieve great results uh, in Torah learning and in our own personal development. Okay, questions here. Then we'll move on to Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 3. A refining pot is for silver and a furnace is for gold, but Hashem tests the hearts. A refining pot is for silver and a furnace is for gold, but Hashem tests the hearts. What are the questions? Okay, Mona, thank you. Why a refining pot of silver? And Jim, yes, how does Hashem test the hearts? And, and what does it mean to do that? Um, and I might add, so what is the difference or is there any between a, between a refining pot for silver and a furnace for gold? And Jim, yes, how, do those, how does testing the hearts relate to the refining process? So what's the relationship between the two halves of the verse? And then ultimately, what's this verse trying to tell us at a practical level? How do I use this? So a refining pot is a tool used to turn rough or, uh, or some type of impure substance uh, into purified uh, metal or purified silver in this case. It's a way of extracting silver from the other elements around it. Uh, a furnace uh, would be a similar tool for the refinement of gold. You take ore, it's dug out of the earth, you put it through certain refining processes, and at the end of the process, you have pure gold. Now note that each of these are physical processes. So, in other words, man has ways of refining things at a physical level. 
With regard to a person's mind and their emotions, however, that requires purification of a different kind. It's not a physical process like the refinement of precious metals. So when it says that Hashem tests the hearts, I'll submit that it means that Hashem's systems create the circumstances by which we are tested in the area of wisdom and knowledge. Refining pots and furnaces are created by man for the purpose of refining gold and silver, for the purpose of of getting out its impurities and making it pure. Hashem, through the system of nature and his personal providence, is the refiner of a person's heart. The situations that we encounter, the people who we work with and interact with, the circumstances that surround us, they are all tests of the heart. They give us an opportunity to look at ourselves and to respond, either emotionally or with wisdom, insight, and knowledge. They teach us where we have areas that need improvement. Okay, and uh, yes, Mona, two different two different steps. Uh, Lori and Terry, you're right. Anyone can test the purity of metals. Hashem can can test the hearts. He has set up the things, uh, the circumstances, and the situations that allow uh, our hearts uh, to be tested. And Mona, yes, I'm not sure what your intent is there by the word temperatures, but uh, we certainly find that it takes high temperatures to refine metals. And sometimes the most challenging of situations are the ones that give us the greatest opportunity for growth. They're also the most sometimes difficult. Uh, So there's, I think, a correlation between that. Uh, the, The easy stuff is easy. The hard stuff uh, when it really gets tough, that can be where the real growth opportunities are. I'll suggest also that that may be why the word tests is used. A person has a choice in how they respond to the situations or the people or the circumstances that pop up in their lives. So in that sense, each of those encounters is a test. How am I going to respond? Will I respond emotionally or will I respond with wisdom and insight? Will I recognize that there's something here for me to learn or there's an occasion for me to rise to? Or will I angrily dismiss it or rationalize in my own mind to make others wrong? Am I going to seek peace and harmony or am I going to seek discord and strife? The silver and the gold ore, once they're in the pot or the furnace, they don't have a choice. Okay, we are making them pure, but man has a choice about himself. And Hashem tests, giving us an opportunity to choose either poorly or to rise to the occasion. So the verse seems to be teaching us a way of looking at things that happen to us, particularly when they are uncomfortable. They are an opportunity to look within ourselves and see what inner work we need to do to purify ourselves. Okay, does this make sense? Any questions? Thank you, Linda. I think we have time for one more verse. 
Let's move on to Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 4. And the verse reads, An evildoer is attentive to iniquitous speech. A deceitful person listens to a destructive tongue. An evildoer is attentive to in iniquitous speech. A deceitful person listens to a destructive tongue. What do you think the questions are here? Okay, Linda, thank you. What is iniquitous speech? Yes, that's a very good question. And, and I might follow that with why is an evildoer attentive to that? And then we could ask, thank you, Terry. You got the words right before I said it. What's a destructive tongue? And Ross, yes, we will get to that. Gossip, excellent point. And why does a deceitful person listen to that? Um, okay, so an evildoer, let's start there. That's a person who does evil things, okay? Um, according to Sajigyan, evil is ignorance. So an evildoer would be one who's operating out of ignorance rather than from wisdom and knowledge. It's a little bit of a different kind of definition of evil than, you know, what we might get from uh, horror novels or something like that. He's saying evil is ignorance. Iniquitous speech is, to uh, Ross's point, uh, speech like gossip, lies, that kind of thing. It's speech that isn't true, or it could be perhaps truth that is said in order to cause harm. For example, gossiping about something that has happened to someone else. So why would an evildoer be attentive to that? Ah, Mona. Very good. Itchy ears listen to what they like to hear. The evildoer is attracted to things that cater to his evil desires. Now, if someone is out there telling the truth in a positive way that will reflect reality, then it's likely not going to appeal to the evil desires of the evildoer. So, Rather than be attracted to the truth, the evildoer is attracted to untruth or the gossip, whatever it is that caters to his fantasies. So he's going to listen attentively to that iniquitous speech because it's what he likes to hear. It caters to his approach to life. Now on the flip side, we have a deceitful person, or not the flip side, but on the second half of the verse, we have a, a deceitful person. A deceitful person is one who deceives people, somebody who's dishonest. And a destructive tongue is one that is speaking words that will lead to destruction, uh, something that's going to cause some harm. So why would the deceitful person listen to a destructive tongue? Again, a deceitful person is attracted to things that will aid in his deceit. So those who are preaching ideas of destruction, to Mona's point, will uh, appeal to him. Uh, and Mona, you've mentioned a, a forked tongue. Yeah, that's, uh, I'd say, a deceitful person. Um, and you're referencing the Garden of Eden. Uh, and I understand the, the snake was very deceitful. Um, so it's, uh, th that person is attracted 
to people who are preaching ideas of destruction. Now, the Rabbeinu Yonah interprets this verse as talking about two different types of people who believe gossip. The first type enjoys hearing degrading things about other people, so they'll believe it. The second type hasn't been trained to seek out the truth, so they'll believe whatever they hear without confirming it. So the first type likes hearing it, so they're going to believe it. The second part doesn't have any training in how to discern uh, you know, correct ideas, so they, they believe whatever they hear and they don't ask the necessary questions to try to determine what's true or not. Now the Rabbeinu Yonah holds that when we hear that kind of gossip, we shouldn't believe it, but instead we should treat the person who's being gossiped about with the same warmth that we would have before we heard that gossip. At the same time, he does say that we can take reasonable precautions to protect ourselves until we get full clarification uh, on the matter. So if there were something about the situation that potentially could affect me, I can take precautions to protect myself until I've been able to investigate the matter in order to clarify exactly what's true. But we have to be very, very careful about that. Just sometimes hearing somebody say something about another person can start to cause doubt uh, in our mind around them. We have to be very, very careful uh, about that. Once the, um, the accusation is made, then it almost starts to gather momentum all on its own, which is why it's very important to stop gossip in its tracks because it's such a destructive force. Okay, any questions on either of those concepts? Okay, in that case, we will stop here for the evening and hopefully pick up uh, next week with Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 5. In the meantime, uh, have a great week and I hope you can join us next time.